you've got two sheets and one of them is it says at the top of it how we are instructed to celebrate Easter you know this is Easter Sunday but it's also God's new year this is the first day of, of the Jewish New Year and indeed an eternal New Year for that matter. There are three feasts that the Bible says are eternal and will last forever. So, and this is one of them. Today is a day where we are intended or supposed to bring in one of our best offerings, if not the best offering financially of the entire year. It's Easter Sunday. It's New Year's Day. And we haven't got time to look at it today, but one of the weeks of the year, we did look at that. And it's a fascinating study, absolutely fascinating. This subject, I, I personally studied in enormous detail. I took a lot of time and energy and went through, you know, in, in immense detail what the Passover offering was all about and how it works. And I can tell you, folks, without a shadow of a doubt, it's powerful. It's powerful, powerful. In other words, God says this. He makes a kind of a, a commitment, a covenant. Look at me a moment. Listen, it's important. God says this once a year on New Year's Day today. I want you to bring in an offering that hurts. An offering that costs you something. I want you to bring it to me. And if you do that, I've listed the seven promises that are spread throughout the Bible and I've given you the Scriptures. You can go home and look at them yourself. God says, I will release an angel. And you can see that in Joshua 5.10. He reinstated the Passover offering, something Moses made a mistake about. But number two, he says he will destroy your enemies. And you can see that in Gideon in Judges chapter 6. He says he will prosper you. You can see that in Exodus 23. He says he will remove sickness from you. Exodus 23 again. Fifthly, he says you will live a long life. Amen. Exodus 23 again. Sixthly, he says that he will increase your inheritance in this life and the next. And seventhly, he will watch over the coming year. So I'm sorry we didn't have enough time. There's just simply not enough days in the week to cover the things we need to cover for Easter. There really isn't. And it's frustrating for me. But I didn't, it wouldn't be responsible of me to not show you that. Because you need to know that. If you're a believer, you're born again here this morning, you need to know that. And you need to obey it. I'm, I apologize for not being able to bring it sooner. The, the message, maybe Stephen could put that on the homepage of our site for if you want to get in-depth teaching on that. But it is a, a, a crucial message. Um, and I would advise you to take it seriously and operate in it. Father, we commit today to you. I thank you that it's Easter Sunday. And we put our hope and our faith in you, God. We crave the Word. We need the Word. And I pray you would open our minds and our, our, our spiritual understanding and let us hear from you many, many insights this morning that will edify us and feed us and change us from glory to glory. God, help us impact this city and impact this world. We commit ourselves to you for the hearing and the ministry of the Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke the Apostle's famous introduction to his book here. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. 
after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, and he gave many convincing signs, many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. I want to take a very simple but profound approach to the Easter message, something we need to be very sharp on because the issues covered through Easter are highly relevant, maybe more relevant today than they have ever been in history, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I want to ask these three simple questions. What happened at Easter? What happened today? What are we talking about? When did it happen and why did it happen? Three very different questions. Well, what happened, folks, is that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. I'm sorry to tell you that the fastest growing religion on earth is Islam. And one of the tenets of Islamic faith is that Jesus didn't actually die. He swooned. He was unconscious. He had a NDE, a near-death experience. He may even have a little bit of an OBE, an out-of-body experience. That's why we showed the film on Friday night. So that you could get some education, some real good teaching from Dr. Morris Rawlings about the truths behind this fact. Jesus was dead. Hallelujah. We need that. He died my death. I need him to die my death because if he doesn't die it, guess who's going to be dying it? I need the death of Jesus. I need the resurrection of Jesus. And it's on these foundational truths on which everything stands that our faith as we live is being contested. And Islam believe and teach that Jesus didn't actually die, but rather he swooned, as they put it. He became unconscious and was eventually resuscitated. Wrong error, completely and utterly wrong. Jesus died, and we need to know about those things. And To Hell and Back is an excellent film for those of you who weren't there. Basically, modern resuscitation techniques are getting so good that people are coming back having had all sorts of experiences kind of new to our day. And the film was the story of six men, very serious men. Four or five of them were doctors or surgeons, uh, quite serious people, you know. Uh, and, and, but I, I love the film. I find it extremely moving, very moving. They were a bit like Spurgeon, you know. They were men who were not going to be easily convinced. Luke here, Luke, in, he's a doctor. Luke is a medical doctor in Acts that you just read. I'm just saying, with that type of mind or systematic thought, you're not going to be too easily convinced. Okay? Medicine's a little, it, it is one of the sciences. And if you're going to believe anything or be persuaded to anything, you're going to want some scientific proofs. Is that fair enough? I'm going to approach the faith. And look what Luke says here. He says that he's convinced that Jesus Christ was alive. He's convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and he, as a scientist, saw many, he says, many convincing truths that Jesus Christ was actually alive. Praise God. Not just look, as you'll see in a moment, but right throughout the New Testament, we have others coming and, and backing up this claim that we make. Now, as there are believers and unbelievers here this morning, let me say, I understand if you have doubt, that's fine. 
You know, you can have doubt in the resurrection of Jesus. Some people think, well, that's incredible. How could such a thing happen? How can it be true? Well, you're not the first person alive to have doubts, okay? There's been plenty of people who have had doubts before you. However, <laughs> there have been plenty of people before you who have studied this subject and researched this subject much more than you. There have been people who have dedicated their lives, you know, at, at certain points to actually disproving the resurrection. And I thank God they come back on bended knee. You know Josh McDowell. He was a university professor. Very nice guy, Josh McDowell, I must say. I really like him. But he was a very sweet-hearted man, and he felt that Christians were being led astray. Look at these people. This is so wrong that they should believe in this ridiculous theory that Jesus raised from the... Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set them free. I'm going to go and research the resurrection, and I'm going to write a book that proves that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And off he went. And you know what happened. He got saved along the way. And he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And many, many others just like him. In fact, in, in the legal profession, they say there's a bit of a contest whether there's more people say that, you know, which profession has, which profession has the most people saved. And, and the medical profession claims that it has the most. And the legal profession also claims that there are more in that profession saved on earth than any other profession. I don't know. It's just interesting, you see, because when you both, one is a scientific approach. In other words, show it to me, prove it to me. And the other is a legal approach. In other words, I want you to present a case that shows me a sensible case that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And you know Frank Morrison, the very same thing. He was a lawyer, except with a different motivation. He set out to write a book that was going to disprove the resurrection. And he went at that with a, a legal mindset. And what happened to him? He got saved. Two of the chief justices in the UK, Lord Hailsham, Lord West, born again. Men who know what it is to present a case. I'm just saying, folks, if you have doubts in the resurrection, you're not the first, but nor are you the most thorough. There have been others before you who have done a much better job of research, and they have become convinced, right? And you can get, you know, books on that, as I say. The other thing I would say to those of you who are not saved, and this is a very convincing argument for me, I can cope with someone doubting the resurrection. I, can, I, I understand that. I'm sure you do too. But you know what I've got a problem with? The same Jesus who was raised from the dead and all these you know, texts are written about is the same Jesus that claimed to have a virgin birth and you have that scenario. It's the same Jesus who caused all the kerfuffle in his life with all the miracles. Do you understand my, my, my point? I can understand you having a doubt of if he did one of those things. But when the same person has to be born of a virgin, then in his life has to do all those miracles, then he has to be raised. It's kind of hard to follow through, even if you claim you could do such a thing or be such a person, be the Son of God. It would be very difficult to follow through, wouldn't it? But you see, all of those things are found in Jesus Christ. And to me, that's a very, very convincing argument. Turn to 1 Corinthians a moment, chapter 15. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll read from verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, 
that Christ died. Do you see that? Christ, what? Died. He did not, you know, swoon. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Peter. Interesting. He appeared to Peter on his own. And Peter makes some comments about what Jesus said to him. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some may have fallen asleep. And you just, as you go through Scripture, you begin to see that there's an enormous amount of weight behind the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have witness statements like these. Okay? We have the testimonies of people. We have events that followed it. We have gatherings with multitudes in them. You have the effects on the earth. And indeed, folks, when you read the book of Acts, when Peter at Pentecost was preaching, do you know what? Peter was about 500 yards from an empty tomb. Amazing. Within, <laughs> within sight of the empty tomb, there he was, and there he preached. That's fantastic. And you can imagine the effect on the Jews. I want to come to that in a moment. What a startling situation. You've got an empty tomb where the Romans were so keen to keep that body, where the Jews wanted that body, and yet the body was gone. Fantastic. Now, that's pretty convincing. Now, you could say to me, well, all of this is just simply still circumstantial evidence. And you would be right. That's right. It is circumstantial evidence. But you know what? People are shot and hung every day based on circumstantial evidence alone in the courts all over this world. It's enough to send anybody to prison. So don't underestimate that. In fact, talking about crimes, we had a small crime this week committed in our home. I'll tell you what happened. It involves this. <laughs> Jeanette likes walnut whips. When she goes to the shop, to buy a walnut whip. She doesn't buy one. She buys the box. <laughs> now, there's three in each box, you see? So what happens is she goes to Asda or she goes to the shop and she buys the box. And when she gets outside, she puts her bags down and she gets out the box and she takes the first one out and she eats it on the way home. She really likes walnut whips, amen. <laughs> then when she gets home, she gets the second one out and she gives that to me. You see, and she normally puts it on the bookcase in the living room, and then she'll promptly sit down, get the third one out, and guess who eats that? You guessed it. Jeanette eats that. So, now, the problem is, sometimes I'm busy, and the walnut whip that's for me is sitting on the bookshelf, and she has finished the first two. You know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> as soon as she's finished the first two, Mine gets into danger. It's vulnerable, you know? And this, just two or three days ago, the box was there, just sitting beside her seat. There's the first wrapper. Sitting beside her seat, there's the second wrapper. Here's an empty box, circumstantial. And sitting beside Jeanette, there's the third empty wrapper. Wow. More than this, if you look closely at the sides of her mouth, you can see chocolate. And she's sitting there going... <laughs> and she says what she always says, I'll get you another one. So you have a confession. <laughs> 
And so it is. It's all circumstantial, folks. I wasn't there. I didn't see you eat that. But she makes a confession. And that's what you have with Jesus. You have him say what was going to happen. You have the apostles testify of what happened. And we are surrounded. It, you know, it's, it's, it's evidence that absolutely demands a verdict. It's evidence beyond reasonable doubt. And that's what it is about the resurrection. So what happened is not a trite or easy question. Please listen, folks. Jesus died. Okay? Jesus died. And on the streets of this city, and in your office, in your college, they need to be made aware of that. Because there's a lot of publicity going the other way. When did it happen? And again, this is something we've looked at, but something that I'm quite shocked over, to be honest. And that's why I want to mention it again. Did or did Jesus not die on Good Friday? If you believe that Jesus died on Good Friday, put your hand up. Come on. Praise the Lord. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Okay. If you do not believe that Jesus died on Good Friday, put your hand up. About half the church. I rest my case. We seem pretty confused about this. Some of you think he died on Good If you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday, put your hand up. Come on. One, two, three, four, five. If you believe he wasn't raised from the dead on Easter Sunday, put your hand up. About half and half again. Wow, we are confused. Folks, please listen. When the street preachers are out on the street over and over and over again, what is shouted up from the crowd is your Bible is full of contradictions. How can I believe in a Bible like that? Some of you believe that Jesus died on Friday. Some of you don't seem to believe that. Some of you believe he was raised on Sunday. Some of you don't. Why don't you make your own mind up? And of course, this is the, the, the terrible damage that has been done to our faith really by the traditions of men. Could I have my next slide, please? Now, this is a chart that is also on your notes to take home because it's a chart that I want you to get to know. Folks, this is enough to see someone get saved. Just seeing the fact that the, 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 the confusion comes from the traditions of men. In John's gospel, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll turn there. Let me just show you this. In John chapter 19 and verse 30, uh, verse 30, I'll read from that. Just turn to that before I show you this, this scripture. John chapter 19, and I'll read from verse 30. John chapter 19, verse 30. I want you to find this in your Bible, because this is a very important one. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a what? Special Sabbath. And if your version doesn't say that, you need to get one that does. A special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies to be left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, if you stay in the same chapter, but just go forward a, a, a few verses, um, John chapter 19, so it's, it's the, I'll find it in a moment, but that's the, what it says there is a special Sabbath, and I want you to understand something, this was Holy Week, and in Jerusalem at this time came around two million Jews. Every year on Holy Week, on the Thursday, there was a special Sabbath. And it says there that Jesus was taken off the cross on that special Sabbath. And he had to be put in the grave because you weren't allowed to have a, a body on a cross during the Sabbath, which was a Thursday. Okay? 
There is confusion over this issue, but there doesn't need to be. That's what, it, that's what happened. See that sheet right there? Jesus died on the Wednesday, and he was raised to life between 12 and 6 on Saturday. Okay? Now, the Jews have absolutely no confusion about that. They understand it completely. We get confused because of reading an English Bible, right? That's been uh, translated. And also because we don't understand a Jewish day starts at 6 and finishes at 6 and a Roman day starts at 12 and finishes at 12. Okay? I know that's confusing. It doesn't need to be. Keep your sheet. Go home. And if anybody says to you the Bible is full of contradictions, you can explain that truth to them. You see, if you say that Jesus died on Friday and he was raised on Sunday, how many nights in the grave is that? Not enough. How many days in the grave? Not enough. And the scripture says that Jesus was in the grave three days, three nights. And there's your three days and three nights. But the traditions of men would leave you thinking it was, you know, two nights, one day, and the whole thing gets very confused. And that is not what should happen, folks. Amen? Now, I mention that again because the last time I preached on this, one of the members in this church came to me with their Bible, and they wanted to talk to me on my own. Listen, folks, please look up here. I mention this again for this reason. A person took me to the church, down into the office, said, I want to talk to you. And they said, you are so wrong. You are so wrong. I said, okay, what what, what am I wrong with? Jesus died on Good Friday. And he was raised on Easter Sunday. Okay, um, let's just get the Bible. No, (laughs) let's just get the Bible and and, and show me. No, no, um, I need to go away and find it. He said, you don't need to go anywhere. You don't actually need, you need to get something into your head. We live within traditions without even knowing it. And the church established over the period of time the Good Friday. And they established Easter Sunday. Easter is actually a pagan feast. It's the feast of Ishtar. It's not even a Christian feast. Okay? It's just to, you know, put you in the picture. So this is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Jews clearly understand. And it leaves your Bible without a contradiction. Amen. And as I say, that's enough, in my opinion, to see some people saved. That fact alone, just untangling it for them. So what happened at the resurrection? Jesus was dead and he was raised to life. When did it happen? Well, he died on the Wednesday and he was raised on the Saturday between 12 and 6. Why did it happen? Turn to Acts, please. Acts chapter 2 and verse 25. This is a fantastic scripture. Acts chapter 2 and verse 25. Actually, I'll read verse 27. Acts chapter 2, verse 27. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You will not abandon. This is talking about Jesus Christ. That God the Father would not abandon him to the grave or let his body see decay. Folks, once again, please look up a minute. You see, when I die, my body will rot. And the reason it will rot is because inside this body lives a rotten person. And if you'll forgive me for saying so, you know when you die, your body will also rot. Because the soul that sins shall die. And you have sinned in your body. And when you die, because you have sinned in your body, your body is under a... Do you know death is not normal? 
Death was never intended for you. You're, you will be an eternal being. But this, even this death was never God's original intention. Death is a sentence. It's the death sentence that comes with sin. It's judicial. God is a judge. Okay? So we're all under that death sentence. So we all die. But it's, it was never supposed to be this way. And of course, God in the fullness of time will change that. But Paul uses this scripture as a proof that Jesus did not sin in the body. You have sinned, I have sinned. And because of that, you will die, I will die, and our bodies will rot. But he didn't sin. And you will not let your holy one, righteous one, see decay. Hallelujah. Fantastic. You know the Turin Shroud? I don't know if it's true or not. But it is interesting when you look at things like that. You see, the reason the, 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 the Turin Shroud is really different from other shrouds is the nature of the markings upon it. Because the markings upon it, they, they reckon, could only be caused by a burst of light. That's the problem. So it's not just decaying flesh. And so it seems to them, not only that the shroud was found in the right place, but it, was, it seems to them that there was a body in there. And that some bang, some burst of light pushed through the cloth. Someone left that cloth. And that's why it's under such investigation and such scrutiny for so long. Well, folks, I don't know about the Turin Shroud, whether it's true or false. It's not really of that much interest to us as Pentecostals. But I do know this. Jesus' body did not see decay because he lived a sinless life. And Paul uses this as proof. Hallelujah. You know, the gospel that we preach has got to be good news. It has got to be good news. One of the best, you know, Gordon, one of the best outreaches last year, I don't know who was there, that we did on the street was the African one. Do you remember that? Do you remember the band? Anybody there for the band? Wasn't that, it was, I, I, could, I could weep, guys. It was brilliant. It was fantastic. And we were there for hours. And do you know why it was fantastic? Because there was joy. And there was hope. And there was love and there was beauty and there was grace available. And as the people came in their hundreds, person after person, they couldn't but stop. What's this? I can feel the love of God. I can feel the joy of the Lord. There's hope for me. There's got to be hope for me. Look at these people. Look at the life in them. Look at the belief they have in me. It was fantastic. Hallelujah. Tonight, Pastor Tom is going to talk about resurrected life. And that's what it is. Jesus rose to set people free. Jesus rose to give you hope. Right? Jesus said this, folks. Look at me. Every person here, look up. Jesus said this. I did not come to condemn this world. I came to give them life. I came to give them hope. And I want every one of you, please, if you represent this church, do not condemn a world that's already condemned. They don't need it. They get out of bed. Romans chapter 1. Every person knows there's a God. Every person. And they get out of bed and at the back of their mind there's one thought. There is no hope for me though. That's the thought. There's no hope for me. I know God saved them, but He won't save me. And as C.S. Lewis quite rightly said, men are more frightened of the love of God than they actually are of the wrath of God. The love of God scares them. Because it's so powerful. And when you represent Jesus Christ, please take it seriously. 
Remember the one you represent, the one who went to the cross. It was not anger that put Jesus on the cross. The Bible says, for God so loved, loved the world that he sent his only son to die. So do you know what? I am very glad that the, God, that the scripture does not commission me to go and preach bad news. I don't have to leave this place and go out there and stop the people on the street and say, do you know what? I've got some pretty bad news for you. Actually, I don't. I've been commissioned. You have been commissioned to preach what? Good news. And do you know what? Do you know what I've got good news for someone? Do you know what that does to me? It changes my demeanor. It changes my expression. It changes my tone. And that whole ambience that surrounds my communication, do you know what it does? It inspires people with hope. That's what it does. Because they can see that you know a good God who will save them. That's what communicates. Amen? Amen, folks. So don't remember, this is a good day. It's Easter Sunday. It's God's resurrection day. It's the start of the new year. But you make a commitment to communicate the true gospel, which is good news to a dying humanity. Unfortunately, again, we're going to look at this tonight. Unfortunately, the Western church, you see, it got, it's, it's, it's got bogged down at the cross. And that is not a place where we're supposed to be. There's a big difference, you know, if you go to Eastern churches. They took a different road. You have been influenced by Rome. Whether you realize it or not, this country was Catholic for years, decades, generations, and got changed through the kings and all the rest of it. And this whole area of the world has been severely affected by a penitent, religious, cross-centered life which was never intended, was supposed to be a resurrection life. And if you go to the churches in the East, you will see an empty cross. You will hear the, the focus on the life and not the death. But here, and I'm sorry, but in Europe, there's so much focus on the sin and death. And if you preach about sin and death all day, what are you going to get? Sin and death. Amen. That's what you're going to get. But if you preach about life and hope, what are you going to get? Life and hope. You will reap what you sow. And I fear that very often our gospel, people don't want what you're selling because what you're selling is corrupted. It's not the true gospel. The gospel is it's love, life, healing, hope, grace, available to all men. God saved me, he can save them too. Amen? That's the gospel. So when you represent this God, it is an awesome thing to do. And I want to, I want to be a good representative. And to make sure what comes out of my mouth is honoring to him. I want to be sure that as I'm preaching, I will be happy that Jesus Christ will stand beside me and say, Amen. Or would he say, Shut up. Clanging symbol. Stop condemning them. I died to set them free. Leave them alone. Hallelujah. And I hope as we see breakthrough in evangelism, I'm over the moon to see Michael get saved this week and the others pray. But as we see the beginnings of breakthrough in evangelism, let's push that. Pray for the elderly. Please consider it as you quite rightly shared. They are dying. They are leaving this world. Folks, it's a, it's a serious day. It's a serious day, Easter Sunday. Listen to this. Maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but I will. I was standing up here a few weeks ago and I was looking at some of you, and I looked at one of you. And you know what? I couldn't see 
salvation anymore. I used to see it, but I couldn't see any more light. It's all gone. God. Imagine that someone could sit here and not even have that. I hope I'm wrong. God, in the name of Jesus, I hope I'm wrong. You see, it's not a joke. If you're born again, we're tripartite beings. We have three phases. Remember, we are an embodied spirit. Then you die and you become a disembodied spirit, right? And then when you're resurrected body, you become an embodied spirit again. This is your embodied spirit bit. This is the first phase. The Bible talks a lot about that. Then you die and your spirit goes to be with the Lord. Your body goes into the ground. The Bible says very little about that bit. But the Bible says a lot about the last bit. Your reincarnation, if you like, when you get your new body. And that's the bit we need to focus on. We need to hold with all our might to Christ. The Apostle Paul said this, I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I think he knew God, don't you? 16 books of your New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. You know, I think he knew God. And Paul says, I work out this salvation with great fear and great trembling of who this God is. And I just fear that our Pentecostal religion can make us a little sloppy towards a holy God. Amen? Don't play games with salvation. Don't play games salvation. Cling to your salvation. Cling to it. Hold to it. Work it out. Fight for it. And make sure that you are saved. And I, I, I worked for a kosher baker for just over a year. And every day I would go to the Jews in, in Dublin, all over Dublin City. It was a, a quite an interesting job. I would go to Jewish homes for the elderly, Jewish schools, Jewish colleges, all sorts of groups and homes around the city. And my boss got saved on the first day, praise the Lord. And he became a, my, my closest friend. Who, he just died a few years ago. And I said to him, I, I, is it okay with you? I'm going to bring tracts and leaflets and gospel messages. I joined the, the, the Bridges for Peace, the International Society for the Jewish Christian Fellowship, and I became the distributor in Ireland for those newspapers, and I would bring those papers to all of those homes. So I, I understand why the Bible says that the Jews are a peculiar people, because believe me, the Jews are a peculiar people. They are a peculiar people. Day after day, you would witness and you, such a stronghold, the Bible calls it a veil. There's a veil before their eyes. And even though you try to get that gospel in, it's not like witnessing to a Gentile, you know. There's a real stronghold, a real difficulty in breaking through that, getting in to them. So it's, 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 it's a shocking thing. What happened at the resurrection of Jesus, because of my experience there, shocks me. I went in day after day. I witnessed hard. I gave them good literature. Not one person so much as looked or listened to my message. Nobody. Not one. Now, please listen, folks. In Jerusalem, on the day that Jesus died, uh, say, uh, at, at, at the day of Pentecost, how many people, how many Jews turned to the Lord? 3,000. 3,000. Now, you take it from me. It is extremely difficult to get one Jew to turn to Christ, to lead. They're so rigid with their faith. 
so loyal, even though it's a false loyalty. So difficult to get them to turn. Okay? 3,000 leave their tradition. 3,000 walk away. Now, something pretty significant has happened for Jews to do that. Would you agree? Something pretty significant. And that's really my last point. Why did it happen? We know what happened. He was raised from the dead. We know when it happened. But what was happening there was the birth of the church. And if you turn to Matthew's gospel, take a look at this. Matthew's gospel, chapter 27 and verse 52. Matthew's gospel, 27 and verse 52. In fact, I'll read from verse 51. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verse 51. At the moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city. How easy, it is just, how easy it is just to read your Bible and not see what you're reading. Look at verse 53. So, Jesus, the cross has gone into the ground. There's been a mighty earthquake. The graves, could I have my last slide up there, please? The, the graveyard. Verse 53. Then uh, they came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Wow. Folks, if you want to know why 3,000 people got saved, this is why. There's about two million Jews in Jerusalem. There's a, a, a rabbi called Jesus Christ being crucified. He claims to be the Son of God, but not many people believe him. He's considered to be a bit of a radical. But everybody knows about it because the deaf have heard, the blind see, but they said he was counterfeiting the miracles, that it was of the devil that caused those things. And he didn't have real power, if you like, the power of God behind him. So what we'll do, we'll crucify him. So what they do, they take Jesus and they bring Jesus to Golgotha. Now listen, when Jesus dies on the cross, do you know what happens? The sky turns black. Darkness covered the whole earth. The second thing that happened is the whole earth, a bit like Japan, the whole earth began to shake. And at that point, you have the first reaction, not from believers, but from unbelievers. It was the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers ran away saying, surely he was the Son of God. We got it wrong. And the fear gripped them. The sky was dark. The earth was shaken. And as the earth shook, these graves, which you can see, you can see this place to this very... This is the Kidron Valley just outside Jerusalem. As the earth shook, these graves broke open. Amazing. And the dead, doesn't say how many, it just says the dead for many generations. The dead rose up. As he died, they rise. First fruits. As he died on the cross, up came the first of the crop. Old Testament believers, people who had faith, like Abraham, who had believed. Now listen, folks. Why did 3,000 Jews get saved? They rise. Jesus is being taken off the cross, and you now have bodies standing beside their graves, but they don't move. You see? Verse 53, they came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, not before, they came out of their tombs at the cross when he died on the cross. Oh, why did 3,000 Jews get saved? Can you imagine, can you imagine the conversations in Jerusalem? They just crucified that guy, did you hear? They just crucified that fellow, Jesus Christ. 
The sky went dark, the earth shook, and someone said, up in the graveyard, there's bodies all standing beside the graves. And those bodies stood still for three days. Now, you're not allowed into the graveyard on the Sabbath. And that's why they had to stay there. God obeys his own rules. And the bodies had to stay in the graveyard, but they couldn't go in either. You weren't allowed to go near a dead thing on the Sabbath. So here's these bodies. Now you can imagine, you can imagine the news in Jerusalem. What's going on? You've got earthquakes, you've got a dark sky, you've got all these bodies. And then three days goes by, three days later, there's a second earthquake. It calls it a mighty earthquake. And Jesus is raised from the dead. And when Jesus is raised from the dead and the second earthquake happens, these guys and gals from all generations begin to walk in to Jerusalem. God, wow. From previous, I mean, people probably who knew people, don't know if they were long dead or what, they walked into Jerusalem. Have you ever wondered how on earth do 3,000 Jews get saved in one instant? Well, that's how. I think I'd get saved there, amen? That's kind of scary. Really scary. You're talking about tampering with someone who has the power of life and death. That's what you're talking about. And when they saw the bodies, and when they saw the darkness, and when they saw the earth move, that's it. I can't cope with this. I need to bow to this God. I can tell you from personal experience, I was walking through a graveyard not long after I was saved, and I, I was, you know, trying to get to know God. And I walked through a, a, a graveyard in Cardiff in a place called Whitchurch. And I was just praying. And God spoke to me. One of the first words from God I ever had. Two little words. He just said, come out. But I tell you, I heard those words and I was confused about them. I told no one, come out. I just kept them in my heart. And I was asking myself, why did God say to me, come out, when I was in a graveyard? What's that all about? That Sunday in our church, the pastor was preaching from Revelation, and he read the passage where it says this, at the end of time, the voice will cry out, the Lord will cry out to all those from all generations, come out, and the graves will burst open, the dead will rise, and I thought, that's it, that's it. I was in a graveyard. I still didn't tell anybody. But you see, as I walked through that graveyard, And I was praying, you're in the Spirit, and the Lord walks with you. And I believe God was saying to me, do you know what? See these graves? One day, very patient God, one day I will say, come out, and they will rise. Not all to life. Some will rise to eternal death some to eternal life. And that's all through your Bible. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says this, the multitudes will rise, some to life, some to death. John's gospel chapter 5 says this, a day will come when all men will hear his voice. The apostle Paul says this, there will be a resurrection for both the wicked and the righteous. Folks, please look up. Listen, if you die without knowing Jesus Christ, it would have been better for you to never have been born at all. It would have been better for you never to be, have been born than to be born and live and either reject him or never find him. 
And the Apostle Paul hammers this out in Romans. For your sake, for God's sake, will you get saved? Will you wise up and hand yourself in and get saved? You know, we use the English word forgiveness. It doesn't, it doesn't translate. The, the, the word in, in, in your Bible is not the word that we would say forgives. not forgiveness. God doesn't forgive sins. In fact, someone put it very well. They said, God doesn't forgive sins. He crucifies them. And when we talk about forgiveness, we talk about a trite, yeah, 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 I'll forgive you, no problem, just forget it. God doesn't do that. It's just not his nature. He's righteous, always right. He's holy. And so he doesn't, he hasn't forgiven my sins as such. He has crucified them. And I'm not, it's not that I'm not guilty, remember? I'm acquitted. It's a different thing. It's a different thing. In other words, the forgiveness the Bible talks about is a substitutionary forgiveness. Someone has got to pay somewhere. This is the nature of holiness. Hard for us to grasp, but this is the true nature of holiness. We're going to have communion in a moment. And uh, is there a last slide there? Look at this. I worked with drug addicts for many years. And I think, Jeanette, what? Three guys, I think, committed suicide. One girl, two boys in their prison cell uh, and for the same reasons because the day the following day they would be facing a judge and they had committed this crime or that crime or there was a catalog of crimes a backlog of crimes and they couldn't stand facing the judge and I can remember with 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 as much grace as I could muster talking to family after family and explaining do you know what take a hold of their hands as the tears fall it's your only chance to communicate the gospel and I would say to them mom Dad, your son killed themselves because they couldn't face this human judge. But you know what they can't avoid? The judge of all judges. And if only you can get it, you're going to face him. You fear this man, you've got nothing to fear in light of this, I tell you. And you, at the death of your child, you need to repent of your sin and you need to get saved. Hallelujah. Scary stuff, you see. Scary stuff. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said these three words. He said, it is finished. And I want you to understand something, folks. He wasn't talking about you. It's not finished for you, by no means. We work out our salvation. He was talking about himself. It was finished for him. But we go through a process of salvation. Our spirit is saved. Our soul is being saved. It's not finished. And our body one day will be saved. But all through history, and you can see these characters in the Bible, all through history, people have thought that they could wash their hands of Jesus, only like the guys who kill themselves, only to go face to face with him. Pilate thought that. I'll wash my hands of him. Let's get rid of that guy. That's him finished. No, Pilate. That's not you finished. He finished his work on the cross, but Pilate will face Jesus. Herod did the same thing, thinking they can walk away. Well, you can't. You can't. Some things in life we can avoid, but I'm afraid your death, the day of your death, you can't avoid. And every one of us, this is the time to prepare for it. I know this is serious stuff, but hey, it, it, it's a very serious time we live in.
treacherous, dangerous times. And I, I, I've got responsibility for you. And I don't want you to take a weak or watery gospel. I don't know about you, but I fear with the attitudes I see towards God Almighty. And I can only say, uh, I don't think you know the God I know. I really don't. I don't, I, I wouldn't say that, do that, live like that, be like that. I don't think you know or are aware of this God. And today, Easter Sunday, what a day, what a day for you to get saved. What a day for you to hand yourself in and say, do you know what, God? I have taken you for granted. What a fool I've been. No more. Today, I want to say, sorry, Lord. Forgive me and please save me. Bow your heads one moment before we have communion. I'm going to give you a moment to do that. I won't embarrass you, but if you want to put your hand up and say, I want to do that right now, then at the end of this meeting, I will come to you and pray with you gladly and repent with you. Is there anyone here who wants to give their life to Jesus Christ and say, God, have mercy on me and save me, please?